Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's often the case that we find what we're looking for when we're looking for something else. A search for our missing keys might unearth the pair of glasses we thought we had lost forever. Or a child's hunt for his favorite toy could lead to the rediscovery of a toy he'd previously abandoned. In those situations, the original search leads to serendipity, what a popular artist on television would have described as a happy accident. In 1985, though, one man set out to find more than his keys. He was looking for something that had gone missing decades earlier. His plan was to find the proverbial needle in a haystack, but in this case, the haystack was the entire ocean. Born in 1942, Robert had been fascinated by the sea from a young age. He grew up in San Diego, California, before earning a bachelor's degree in geology and chemistry from UC Santa Barbara, followed by a graduate degree in geophysics from the University of Hawaii in 1966. Robert was also a member of the Army's Reserve Officers Training Program, ROTC, and was called to serve in 1967. He requested to join the Navy, where he assisted in several underwater expeditions over the years. As part of his doctoral thesis, he even mapped out the ocean floor in the Gulf of Maine. Robert practically lived at sea, which made him the perfect person to lead a team to the bottom of the ocean in 1985. During the summer of that year, the U.S. Navy asked Robert to take a small submersible to the bottom of the Atlantic to find a pair of lost nuclear submarines. The USS Scorpion and the USS Thresher had both gone missing in 1968. The circumstances surrounding their disappearances were of the utmost importance to the government, who wanted to know what had happened to the sub's nuclear reactors. There was also concern about the effect of their radioactivity on the underwater environment. Now, a few years prior, Robert had asked the Navy about financing the development of the deep-sea technology that he had been working on. It was an unmanned submersible, fitted with cameras that could scour the ocean floor for debris. He called it Argo. The Navy hadn't been interested in Argo at the time, but now they realized just how useful the little robot might be. In late August of that year, Robert deployed his submersible. He and his team tracked the field of debris left behind by the subs after they had exploded, figuring that if they followed the trail, it would eventually lead them to the missing vessels. And their plan worked. The Thresher had suffered a mechanical failure that had led to its sinking. The fate of the Scorpion, though, was less obvious. Several theories were posed as to what had caused it to implode. One suggested it was the accidental explosion of a torpedo inside the sub, Another theory claimed that hydrogen had built up in the ventilation system and had exploded. Whatever the case, the Navy was satisfied with the results of the expedition. But Robert wasn't done. In fact, he had made a deal with the military as a condition of his research. In the event that he was able to find the missing subs, the Navy would allow him to pursue a personal project of his own with any remaining time on the mission. And the only reason they allowed it was because they didn't think that he would find what he was looking for. You see, Robert had a hunch that a missing shipwreck was located near where the Scorpion and Thresher had been found. He'd already learned an important lesson from studying their trail of debris, too. The heaviest pieces sunk quickly, while the currents carried the lighter remains away. So Robert's team combed the ocean floor with Argo, 
its cameras sending back gray, grainy footage of smooth terrain two miles below the surface. He was looking for a much larger debris trail than that of the two submarines, something so big that it would lead him straight to the wreck of one of the most famous ships of all time. And then, on September 1st of 1985, his hard work paid off. The cameras picked up something massive, a boiler, the image of which caught everyone off guard. It was as big as a house, and sure enough, it was sitting mere feet from the ship's majestic bow. Seventy-three years earlier, a brand new vessel had pulled out of Southampton, England, bound for New York City. Sadly, it never completed its journey. In the early morning hours of April 15th, it struck an iceberg and sunk into the depths of the North Atlantic. The Titanic was advertised as many things. Luxurious, safe, and of course, unsinkable. Well, history would prove otherwise, but the ship's final resting place would have remained unknown had it not been for Robert Ballard's obsession and his keen negotiating skills. Despite the Titanic's short-lived existence, its maiden voyage spawned countless tales, many of which were based on the lives of those on board. 1,500 souls were lost when the ship sank in 1912, 1,500 stories that would never get their happy endings. However, there was one story that did go on to have a happy ending. In fact, it had about 130 of them. Charles Lightoller was the second officer on the Titanic. He grew up as part of a working-class family in a small town in Lancashire, England, called Chorley. Charles's mother died soon after giving birth to him, and his father remarried, moving him to New Zealand ten years later. As a result, young Charles was raised by other family members until he was old enough to find work on his own. Charles was only 13 when he set out to pave his own way, but he didn't want to end up in a factory like his parents. Instead, he enlisted as an apprentice with a sailing vessel known as the Primrose Hill, he traveled for years aboard different ships, going to faraway places like India. By the time he was 21, he had earned his second mate certificate. Charles tried his hand at other professions, including gold prospector in the Yukon, as well as a cowboy in Canada, but the sea continued to call to him. At the turn of the century, he returned to the ocean, this time as an employee of the British shipping company, White Star Line. Charles had worked his way up. Functioning as fourth officer on the SS Medic before moving to the SS Majestic a few years later, the Majestic happened to be captained by one Edward J. Smith, who would go on to lead another White Star ship, the ill-fated RMS Titanic. Charles boarded the Titanic in Belfast roughly one week before its maiden voyage was set to begin. He was made second officer, behind first officer William McMaster Murdoch. Charles was thorough in his duties as second officer, he was in charge of the last bridge watch shift on the night of April 14th of 1912 and made sure other lookouts on duty kept an eye out for ice in the water. Murdoch then relieved him for the night, allowing Charles to get some shut-eye for a few hours. At least, that was the plan. The second officer hadn't even crawled into bed when the Titanic brushed against the side of a massive iceberg. And the rest, as they always say, is history. Charles was instrumental in evacuating passengers off the ship and followed the captain's commands to the letter, perhaps to the detriment of himself and others. Smith had ordered the lifeboats to be filled with women and children. Charles seemed to believe that meant only women and children, and so he began lowering lifeboats that were partially filled when no other women or children could be found. 
He even leapt aboard a lifeboat full of male passengers and aimed his unloaded revolver at them. He called them cowards for not staying to help the others. The ashamed men then disembarked back onto the Titanic's deck. In a last-ditch effort before the water overtook the bow, Charles attempted to launch a collapsible boat that had been stored on the roof of the officers' quarters. It landed upside down as the front of Titanic slipped below the waves. The water rushed the deck, and Charles dove off the roof into the icy North Atlantic to save himself. He tried to swim away from the ship as quickly as possible, knowing the suction would pull him under as it sank. But he was still too close, and Charles was pulled against the ventilation shaft as Titanic continued its descent. He was unable to break free, and believed he would drown, until suddenly an eruption from below forced a wave of hot air through the vent, launching him back to the surface. It was a boiler that had exploded from inside the ship. Charles got his bearings and caught sight of the collapsible lifeboat he had tried to launch earlier. He tried pulling himself on board using a rope hanging from its side, only to see one of the Titanic's funnels collapse close by. It landed inches away, and the ensuing wave sent him and the lifeboat flying 50 yards from the ship. But he was able to climb on top of the collapsible, along with several other survivors, as they watched the Titanic disappear into the murky depths below. After that, he helped to keep the people in the boat calm during the night, showing them how to shift their weight to prevent ocean swells from tossing them back into the water. Hours later, the RMS Carpathia, a passenger steamship that had received Titanic's distress calls, arrived on scene to rescue Charles and over 700 other survivors. The Titanic's second officer had been given a second chance, one he made sure to use to help others for the rest of his life. He went on to fight in World War I, serving in the Royal Navy Reserve on board another White Star ship, the RMS Oceanic. At the end of the war, he retired from service as a commander. Charles lived a fairly quiet life after that, writing a book about his time at sea and what he'd encountered aboard the Titanic. And then, in 1940, he got the opportunity to jump into action one more time. Charles sailed to northern France in his motor yacht, Sundowner, along with his son Roger, Charles refused to let the military requisition his boat against his will, so he chose to sail it himself where it was needed. Sundowner had a maximum capacity of 21 passengers. That didn't stop Charles and his son from loading 127 British servicemen on board anyway. The battle and subsequent evacuation of Dunkirk saw the deaths of thousands of Allied soldiers, and thanks to one perfectly timed boiler explosion, Charles Lightoller was there to help as many as he could— just as he had done on board the Titanic 30 years before. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show and you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.